Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sorbonne Mesa podcast. As always, with me, your host, Alan McGuire. Spanish politics uh, has given us another election, which means another podcast episode. Uh, if you want to listen to previous podcast episodes that we have done on um, the Basque Country and Galician elections, that's one of our very first episodes. And I also um, covered the recent Catalan elections. Um, we've been gifted the gift of a Madrid election, um, but it didn't come just out of the blue. It was a, as a result of um, political movers, maneuvers all over the country. Um, so today with me, I have Caroline Gray. Uh, she's a Spanish um, politics lecturer at Aston University. Uh, she's come to talk about the different territorial politic, political moves that's led up to this and how it's going to affect national politics. So welcome back to the Sorbonne Mesa podcast, Caroline. Thank you. It's great to be back. And if you haven't already listened to my previous episode with Caroline about her book on territorial politics in Spain and its importance in Spanish politics, then please do go back and have a listen to that episode. And also with us, we have Owen Gilmartin. Owen is a regular contributor to Jacobin magazine and Tribune magazine. And he's also written for Open Democracy and Navarra Media. And he's often covering Spanish politics. Welcome back, Owen. Hey, Alan. Good to be here. And uh, Owen has been on the show several times and there's plenty of episodes with him that you can go back and listen to. Uh, one of my favourites was the pandemic politics, which... Uh, continues on after all this time uh, we'll probably need to do an update on that soon so around I think it was about five or six weeks ago it's all sort of molded into one since I'm working from home um, but the what the Spanish media named a political earthquake uh, from Murcia um, came about uh, and this extended to Castellón and eventually Madrid um, and some even speculated that it could reach Andalusia. Um, Caroline, can you give us a bit of a, uh, an explanation of what a, what a political earthquake is in uh, Spanish politics? <laughs> well, really, the political earthquakes of the past few years have all been related in some way or another with the emergence of new parties and the decline of the traditional parties. So we've ended up with a very fragmented political landscape. And if we think about what happened in Murcia, well, basically you've got your 17 regional governments in Spain, as well as obviously your, your national government. And what happens at regional government level um, can have implications for party alliances elsewhere. And so the earthquake that happened in this case was that one of the new parties, and when I say new parties, I mean one of those that emerged back in 2014, 15, one of those parties decided to change its alliances. And this was Ciudadanos, the Citizens Party. So back in 2019, after a while of shifting its alliance arrangements, Ciudadanos decided to situate itself firmly on the right as a partner of Spain's right-wing parties, well, a partner or a competitor. And that affected what it did at regional government level. So in Murcia, for example, when the PP was trying to form a government there, that's your Spanish Conservatives, the, the, the People's Party, they needed support from other parties and they managed to form a government in, in Murcia with support from the Citizens Party and also from another far-right party, Vox. But 
a big shift occurred when suddenly the Citizens Party, Ciudadanos, decided actually we're going to withdraw our support from the, the People's Party, the Conservative Party, and we're going to form an alternative government with the socialists instead. And that led to a motion of no confidence, an attempt to form a different government. And so basically this was an earthquake because you had the Citizens Party, which had previously decided to align itself fully on the right, deciding actually now we're going to ally with the socialists instead. So it started out as an earthquake in that sense, but then the earthquake got more complicated in that some of the members of the Citizens Party decided, well, actually, no, we're not going to move and join the socialists instead. We're going to actually stick to the conservatives. And so the earthquake backfired for the Citizens Party. And in the end, because of this split within the Citizens Party, they stayed uh, with the, the conservatives managed to stay in power thanks to the support of those who decided that they weren't going to support the socialists after all. So it's all a bit of a um, complicated scenario, but that basically this, the earthquake was that you had this citizens party that had previously allied with the right, trying to change to an ally, to ally with the socialists. That backfired because some of its own representatives went against the proposal. And this then had implications for other regions, most notably Madrid, because you have similar governance arrangements in those regions. In the Madrid region, you've had the PP there being supported by the Citizens Party in government with the Citizens Party. And all of a sudden, the PP there was worried that the Citizens Party there might start to support the socialists instead. And so they've decided to call elections as well. So really, the earthquake is all to do with who supports who, because in the fragmented political landscape, Landscape we've got in Spain, both at national and at regional government level, it's very difficult for any one party to form a government alone. They need the support of others. And when you've got key partners shifting who they support, that has huge implications for politics overall. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a brilliant explanation. Um, it also extended to Castellón, right? And... Um... And there was concerns about Andalusia because they're both right-leaning governments supported by Ciudadanos. Is that right? Um, yes, that's right. And I think we have to, when we think about regional politics in Spain, I mean, regional politics has always had an ability to affect national politics because some regions of Spain are strongholds of certain parties and that affects how those parties then behave at national government level as well. And I think if we think of the different regions you've just mentioned, some of those have always been PP strongholds. Like Madrid, to be honest, has long been a PP stronghold. Murcia has long been a PP stronghold. But then we've also had in recent times some important shifts. So Andalusia is a region which had always been a PSOE, a socialist stronghold. But a couple of years back, we saw, we saw a change that Andalusia switched hands, um, as it were, due to different alliance dynamics, the arrival of new parties. And we've had these kind of alliance arrangements between different right wing parties. But as soon as one of the parties decides to switch support, that can affect some of these very fragile balances of power in particular regions. Mm. And uh, Owen, what's what's your opinion on 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 this about why the parties have decided to, to switch alliances? Um, that's a good question. I think taking it from the perspective maybe of the of the national level, um, the socialists want to keep Ciudadanos alive. Basically, they want they need 
Pedro Sanchez and his um, sort of communications chief, Ivan Redondo, they've always preferred a strategy of variable alliances so that they're not sort of tied to the left, their left flank. They don't want to have to sort of negotiate every law with, with Catalan nationalists and with the other, with, with um, other sort of leftist groups. They want, they want the option of negotiating with a, with a centrist force. Um, and I think part, part of the maneuvers, I mean, seem to be initiated from Moncloa, from, from Ivan Redondo. And uh, you know, one, one Podemos MP has said he can't believe how, how clumsy an operation it was. I mean, um, the fact that they didn't seem to think through that this would have implications in other areas, particularly in Madrid. I mean, um, the parties weren't, weren't on the same, same page in terms of bringing a, a motion of no confidence against Against the um, against Ayuso, the Pepe president in Madrid, and I think, you know, it, it allowed it gave Ayuso the opportunity, and she she has been waiting probably since last autumn for an opportunity to call new elections. She has um, she has really consolidated her support with with um, Ciudadanos' sort of collapse in the polls. Um, this was her opportunity to regain, um, you know, much of that support. So you know, the polls right now. Put her and the Pepe on, I think, for, nearly forty percent. So this is going, you know, instead of a instead of a pretty much an equal alliance between um, Pepe and Ciudadanos um, after the two thousand nineteen elections, she is now, you know, reasserting Pepe hegemony in Madrid, and it, it seemed very short sighted from 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 Moncloa, from Ivan Redondo, that they didn't didn't think through these consequences. Um, and opened up this opportunity. Um, so I think that's on one point. And then the other point is, yeah, Ayuso has been waiting months. And it is quite a cynical operation to call, I mean, this is an unnecessary election. Um, it's, it's about her consolidating her support um, and the Pepe's in Madrid. Um, but, you know, um, just a, a, an unnecessary election, I think. Mm. So it's like, yes, it's an unnecessary election that she's wanting to called for a long time, but they gave her the opportunity really to exactly. I mean, if she yeah. if she hadn't called an election, then I mean it was was it 40 minutes after she called an election that Mass Pais or Mass Madrid and the Basoe put in a, a motion of no confidence. So <clears throat> so yeah. Um I suppose the interesting thing is the power fluctuation within Ciudadanos, right? Because you've as you said, Caroline, they were on the right and then they were sort of going on the left. In the meantime, they had a switch between uh, leaders, uh, Inez Aramadas, from who was like their, their number one in Catalonia, has been made the leader. Uh, and she's obviously taken them more to the left and more to the centre. Um, and in the meantime, their old leader uh, has joined Pete Le Pepe, um, and um, as you said, Caroline, the, the deputies in, in Murcia obviously didn't feel like going along with Inez Aramadas's plan to go left. They, um, I think Filodanos actually come out and said at some point, uh, I think they said that the, they effectively accused the PP of buying off these deputies with was it, 60 grand and a, and a chauffeur um, was the words of the Filodanos deputy in Murcia um, when it all fell through. And yeah, most of this earthquake, you know, it, it might have shook a few people, but nothing collapsed in the end. Um, so yeah, Murcia is still in the hands of the PP. Um, 
Castellón, I, I think that sort of just fizzled out. And Madrid, we have a, we have um, we have elections. Um, on a uh, on a Madrid focusing on Madrid, uh, it's kind of an important. Well, it's I mean it's the capital city, but it's kind of an important place for lots of these parties. The Pepe because they've ruled here for twenty six years, um, and but also it's important for Podemos because this was more or less where Podemos was born, um, and. Uh, just about after a week after the election was called, uh, everyone was, uh, me and Owen were actually having a beer <laughs> talking about this, like where, you know, who's going to be the candidate? No one knows who the candidate is going to be. And um, it turned out to be Pablo Iglesias, um, which was quite a big shock because at the time he was, um, he was vice president. So, uh, or vice uh, deputy prime minister, whatever you want to call it call it there's always debate over that translation but uh so owen can you tell us uh you know why uh what what happened why did pablo Iglesias stand down and and why is um uh, madrid so important for podemos yeah i mean it, it certainly came as a shock no um i i think my prediction was alberto garzon was going to be the candidate but yeah i mean no one expected that the deputy prime minister of the country was going to you know, stand down to run in a regional election, however, however important Madrid is. Um, but it has a certain logic to it, I think, when you think about it afterwards. I mean, I think there's probably three factors informing his decision. Um, I guess the first, which is the one that sort of pushed in public, is, um, it, you know, he, he wanted to block a, a, an explicitly far-right government in, in the Spanish capital. So, you know, all the polls, particularly before his decision, showed... Um, the Pepe with a sort of Trumpian candidate, uh, Isabel Ayuso, um, and, and Vox were going to have a majority. And this was going to be the first time, you know, an extreme right force would enter regional governments in Spain. Um, so the idea in part there was that, you, you know, the, um, the deputy prime minister of the national government would get involved in a regional election and sort of transform, transform the election into... I mean, into a battle, I guess, yeah, between, you know, a question of, you know, sort of stopping fascism, other um, democracy or fascism has been the sort of slogan of, of, of Podemos' campaign. But I mean, I think more importantly for Podemos are the sort of party political elements, which um, I see as, as sort of sort of twofold. One, they need, you know, the, the polls before his, en his entry into the race were showed Podemos basically struggling to even make the 5% threshold to get into the regional parliament. That, mm. um, and, and that, you know, that would have been pretty much, a, you know, a mortal blow to the party. If you can't, you know, you don't have representation in the, in the, um, you know, the regional parliament of the capital of the country. Um, and, and so I think his, his candidacy was, was, was designed to sort of, to, I mean, I guess in, in part, they also wanted to compete with Mass Madrid. Now, Mass Madrid is a sort of breakaway formation from Podemos, headed by the ex-deputy leader, Inigo Erajón. And um, the idea was, was, was to sort of stabilize Podemos's position, maybe improve it somewhat. They've had sort of middling, you know, um, um, success in that sense, you know, I think it, the numbers have gone up to about 8% from just 
just below 5%. So I think there's been a certain sort of consolidation of their support um, and enough at least to, to, to give them a decent presence within the regional parliament. I think you know, they'll probably get between 10 and 12 seats, um, which is, you know, an improvement. I think they, they got seven two years ago. Um, so it probably hasn't had the, the sort of effect um, they had hoped in terms of the campaign, but it has stabilized their, their numbers. And I think the third point is it'll, it, it allowed for a, tra a leadership transition within the sort of party, um, which I think was always on the cards. Um, but this sort of the surprise elections in Madrid sort of sped that up. Um, and so what you're going to have, have now in Unidos Podemos is a sort of a twin leadership, no? Uh, the Labour minister, uh, Yolanda Diaz, will be the sort of the main figurehead of the party within the coalition. Um, she now has become deputy prime minister. Um, and Iglesias will be um, the sort of, the, will, will remain the general secretary of Podemos outside, outside the, 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 uh, the national government. Um, and I think in part that is, that indicates maybe the need to change the dynamic in the coalition, that they need a strong voice outside the government to put pressure on the PSOE, um, the socialists, because at the end of the day, the, the coalition hasn't been working for them the last, particularly the last six months. There's a lot of frustration within the party. They, I mean, the, you know, the socialists have sort of blocked in, you know, a number of very important initiatives, initiatives for them. The polling numbers weren't good. And so I think this is about changing the dynamic and having, you know, a, um, a leadership transition in which, you know, Yolanda Diaz is probably, I think she's one of the three most highly rated um, ministers in, in, in all the polling, including among socialist voters. So she, you know, she is a very popular figure. It's sort of a renewal of the leadership. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the things the coalition has given Podemos is, is, um, is this new leadership, you know, her, her, her public profile was very low before the coalition. Um, she's done a lot of, you know, a lot of good things and, you know, running the sort of Erte program, um, et cetera. And I think, you know, there was talk just before the Madrid election, because there was so many, you know, such an impasse within the coalition that Pedro Sanchez was thinking about going towards new elections, maybe in the autumn. And so I think they need, they needed that, that leadership transition pretty soon as well. Like to have, um, you know, I think in polling, they've gone up, back up to sort of 14% uh, with when you factor in Yolanda Diaz as the, as the candidate for uh, Unidas Ponemos. So I think in that sense, you know, they're, they're the three main factors, you know, stop the, stop the far right, getting an overall majority, stabilize Unidos, Unidas Podemos' support, and then the leadership transition. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the the candidacy of Pablo Iglesias has, has had a twofold effect as well, because he is one of the most, well, he's very polarizing, uh, according to a lot of polls. Uh, uh, yeah, 46%, I think it was, of 4,000 people said they uh, didn't like Pablo Iglesias at all. He's obviously going to mobilize a lot on the left. And, and the, uh, this is something Podemos has been saying since the start of the election that, you know, the only reason that the right wing win in, in Madrid elections is because they they always vote. And there's like weird adverts of aliens saying, you know, the Madrid right will vote even if there's an alien invasion. 
<laughs> um, so the, that's been like on the left, there's been this, uh, you know, with the Pessoa, Master Madrid and Podemos, you know, they haven't been attacking each other. They've all been trying to mobilize their, their voters, uh, voter base to get out and vote, to try and, um, to try and move Ayuso and the PP, which is after 26 years. Um, but, but Caroline, I wondered if you could just uh, share your thoughts on, uh, well, if, if you've got anything to add to what Owen said, but also why is Madrid so important for other parties as well, like, uh, well, mainly the PP, but also for Fidobanos and Vox? Well, I think really, I mean, obviously it is the capital, but it also, it, it's sort of an experimentation ground, really, for what might happen at national level, because realistically, um, you know, we're seeing that, I mean, Spain has had so many elections at national level as well in the past few years, and the, the government that we, Spain has currently got, which is a, a PSOE-Podemos coalition, which is a minority coalition dependent on the support of lots of regionally-based parties, you know, that's having difficulties, as, as Owens mentioned, um, that, you know, we don't know how long that'll last. And so it is a sort of a testing ground, really. And I mean, I think if we think to what might happen in future at national level. I mean, I, we do have to think about how much politics has changed. Prior to 2015, you know, between 1982 and 2015, Spain at national level was always governed either by the socialists or by the conservatives, the PP. And usually, actually, they didn't, they didn't always get an absolute majority to govern by themselves. And when they didn't, they would form a minority government, a strong minority government that just needed the support of some of the regionally based parties, mainly the Basques and the Catalans, but also some others like the Canaries Coalition. And those regionally based supporters would, regionally based parties, sorry, would support um, minority governments of either the Conservatives or the Socialists, either. We're now in a completely different dynamic since 2015, where A, the party that wins the elections of the PP or the Socialists, it's usually one, it's still one or the other up to now, doesn't, the support from the regionally based parties isn't enough because they're winning so fewer seats than before. So they need support from another statewide party as well. And then you've got the added dynamic that the, now, because of all the dynamics that have happened in Catalonia, the regionally based parties like your Basque and Catalan nationalists are highly unlikely to support a PP government. So basically, if in future the PP were to win the national elections with a minority, because the likelihood of getting an absolute majority in the in the current climate is, is basically next to none, um, if they were to win the national elections, realistically, your only likely supporter to enable them to govern is Vox and, until recently, Ciudadanos. And with Ciudadanos now, it's all a bit up in the air. It looks like that their recent um, attempts to shift alliances have backfired to the extent that they might actually pretty much disappear from, from Madrid, and that could have implications for other areas as well. So, the, you know, if we do see the PP forming um, a coalition with Vox in Madrid, in the Madrid region, I mean, that's almost an example of what could happen at national level were the PP to win national elections. And, and obviously also other regional governments as well. So I think what's happening in this, in this region is, what we see play the dynamics we see that playing out in regions can they don't necessarily but they can shape quite a lot what might happen at national level mm. 
Oh, so yeah, no, no, I agree with that. I think that's um, that's what's so interesting is that um, I guess the polarization in Spanish politics um, makes it very unlikely that the the regional nationalists will support the the Spanish right going forward. And this makes it. I mean, it, I think that the big problem for the Pepe is Madrid isn't Spain. Um, you know that Ayuso famously said, you know, Madrid es un uh, España de, dentro de España, but it's not true. You know, it's um, Spain is a very very plural, very diverse country. And so, you know, the, the dynamics that work in Madrid and their particular electoral coalition within the capital just don't, it's very hard for that to translate into a national majority. I mean, um, you know, it, it is, it is, it's an incredible um, electoral coalition they have, have in, 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 in Madrid because it's so concentrated. It's so concentrated among the sort of top 30% in, ter uh, in terms of income, now the richest 30% of the population. Um, I think in, in 2015 and 2019, the Pepe won because they dominated the top 10%. They had a 200,000 vote lead uh, um, over the left uh, among the top 10% um, of, 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 uh, uh, of income, of voters in terms of income. And I think that makes it, um, and that depends on, on very particular factors. Um, so that the left doesn't have, I mean, the left wins among the sort of bottom 70% of voters in terms of income. But, the, but there, there's a huge abstention, abstention among, I think, particularly the bottom 30%. Um, and that dynamic has worked in Madrid. It's worked for, 30, for nearly 30 years, 25 years. But it doesn't really translate into a national level. And if you can't, the way Afnar did in the 90s, reach out to sort of right-wing Catalan nationalists, it, it makes it very difficult to govern. Um, and, and so, yeah, the Madrid, Madrid is very much their stronghold. It's, you know, the sort of economic engine of the country now, but it's not, it's not, it just doesn't translate, I think, onto a national level. And so I think, you know, even talking in terms of, you know, if, if the Pepe do win, if they get 40%, I mean, it's, it's very impressive in terms of sort of consolidate, reconsolidating uh, the right, the right wing support around uh, the one party. You know, you've had this, Caroline said, this fragmentation um, you know, in 2019, I mean, it was, um, I don't know, what did the Pepe get, 20-something percent? Now they're going up to, up to 40. Um, and so that is an achievement, but I just don't see how that can be translated onto a national level. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And I think, you know, at the national level, we are, um, the likelihood is we are going to see short-lived governments, yeah. you know, for quite a long time, because you've got... It, and this this polarization between left and right. I mean, I think it, we should talk perhaps a bit more about what's happened to Ciudadanos in recent years, because we're talking about a party that, I mean, it, it was first originally founded back in the Catalan region to, to, to oppose Catalan nationalism. But, you know, it was founded by disillusioned socialists and disillusioned people from the centre of the political centre, as it were. And then obviously from 2014 or around then on, they managed to expand to national politics. And at first it seemed like, you know, they were trying to be a, essentially a kind of a form of a, of the like the Liberal Democrats in the UK. I mean, on, on economic policy, they were always sort of centre-right. Um, but then on social policy, they were more centrist. So they were sort of kind of appearing as a kind of Liberal Democrat type force. But of course, that the fact that they were so far on the right on the Catalan issue and on the national question, and as that became more dominated Spanish politics more and more around the time of the attempts of a Catalan referendum, 
referendum in 2017, etc. That pushed Ciudadanos further and further to the right, particularly when most of its voters were actually coming from the right. Most of its voters were disillusioned PP voters. Um, so it made it very difficult for them to continue to to provide that kind of middle bridge. And, and I thought, well, I mean, personally, I think um, Rivera, the leader at the time, became overconfident when the polls showed that, that it look, looked like Ciudadanos, you know, back in early 2019 might even overtake the PP. And therefore he decided, right, we're now positioning ourselves as an alternative to the PP. And they lost that kind of ability to shift between supporting either the socialists or the PP, depending on the circumstances. And we can see, you know, recently with what happened in Murcia, which triggered, triggered what's happening in Madrid now, um, even if Ayuso did take a bit advantage of the scenario. And um, that was a sort of a brief attempt by the Ciudadanos to go back to what it had initially been able to do several years back of, of offering support either to the socialists or the conservatives, depending on the circumstances. But we can see from the way that it's backfired, but actually that no longer works. Ciudadanos is now positioned firmly on the right. I think it would be very difficult for them to get back to a position where they could realistically form, say, a coalition with the socialists at national level, even if the socialists, many within the socialists would still like that. So we are in this situation of very polarized politics between left and right in Spain at the moment. And I've 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 heard rumours that uh, well I I read I read it in several newspapers that there's there are rumours that um, Ines Avamadas will step down if if they completely disappear from Madrid, uh, and I suppose you know I don't really see where Ciudadanos would go from from there really, um, it would be a bit of a bit of a gamble but. Um, yeah, I don't see where where this party is going to go if they if and and they're, I don't think any poll has showed them getting one seat right so far. Not one poll has showed them getting over the five percent mark to get a seat in Madrid. Uh, so yeah, this as you said, Caroline, the polarization is um, is just widening. So this campaign, uh, ever since it was ever since the election was called by. Uh, by you so it's the, the number the figures have sort of fluctuated a little bit but there hasn't been too much for change um most polls have come out and said that uh there's either going to be a slight uh right-wing majority with vox and pp or there's the possibility of a left-wing um majority that was a couple of weeks ago now i don't think many polls have said much about that recently um but th there was a big, you know, for all of the loud language around Vox, there was a point very early on in the campaign where they were polling, I think, like 8% or something very, you know, low like that. So uh, they were very quiet in the beginning of the campaign. And then they sort of, uh, I think Americans would call it like an October surprise or, you know, things to try and change the, the narrative. Uh, Vox put this poster up in uh, the third Canilla station in, in Sol, in the centre of Madrid, that said, uh, basically, and it was a copy of, uh, of what is basically Nazi propaganda, the Nazis used a similar uh, rhetoric, which was, you know, an unaccompanied migrant child, or a mena, as they call them in Spain, derogatory term for an unaccompanied migrant child, cost the state... 4,700 a month 
and your abuela, your your grandmother gets 426 in her pension a month. Now this, I mean, it's been reported for hate speech by um, by the PSOE and, and by Podemos and, and Mass Madrid. Um, but this really did did sort of change the 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 um, the conversation quite, and it, and I think it's sort of got a lot more toxic since then. Um, why? I mean, other than falling in the polls, what what do you think the um, Vox's sort of campaign uh, strategy is here, Owen? Well, yeah, I mean, I think part part of it is that they're up against a, a candidate from the from the Pepe, the Popular Party who who is who is taking a quite trumpian strategy herself and so they are having to go to ever more extremes to try and um, gain some space um, and yeah i mean look the campaign has been dominated by a series of sort of far right provocations um, you know beginning pretty much you know the day for for example pablo Iglesias stepped down as the deputy prime minister you know within hours he was being sort of hassled by a group of five five neo-Nazis who are boycotting a Podemos event. And it just went from there. I mean, you know, when the Unidos Podemos list was announced um, and included the, the spokesman of the, the Mantero Union, the, the street seller union, um, I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong, but Seringhe um, Mabaya, um, he, Vox, he's a Spanish citizen, but Vox, um, you know, Vox said they, if they get into power, they're going to deport him. Um, and Jesus. you then, you know, you then had the, for example, the the disturbances at their uh, Bayekas rally, um, which was, you know, orchestrated, you know, um, intentionally orchestrated by the leadership. Um, the Abascal, the leader of Vox and his bodyguards broke through a police cordon to confront anti-fascist protesters um, and sort of kickstarted, you know, sort of a series of uh, confrontations with between the protesters and the police. They were looking for violence and they this has been their strategy throughout to just ratchet up tensions create these sort of you know spectacles which they can feed off um you know in the first debate for example you know the um they dominated the um the the social media responses i think on twitter 60 percent of of tweets um were related to sort of uh, Rocio Monasterio, the their their candidate. You know, you know, this is a it's a party which is as you're saying is only putting on ten percent, eight ten percent, but on social, you know, it was dominating the response to the uh, debate on social media, and so they have, you know, they have been effective in sort of centering the campaign around them. Um, but it has led, you know, it's led to really dark places. I mean, uh, which is, you know, you've had. I think you know we also have to remember within the last six weeks you've also, you've also had a, a petrol bomb attack on on Podemos's uh, headquarters in in Murcia. Um, you know we were talking about Murcia earlier. Um, you know you've had death threats, etc. And so, I mean it's you know it's it's um, it's a it's an effective campaigning for for an extreme right party, but it's you know it's bringing Spanish politics into into very dark places. Mm. And. Uh, Caroline, I think the question question for you is uh, for for uh, the PP um, to that there's a lot of debate around whether they will pact with Vox if they win. Um, 
Now, back, I think it was back in November, um, Pablo Casada, the leader on the national level of, of, um, of the PP, sort of turned around and sort of moved his party away from Vox. You know, the PP were trying to distance themselves from Vox. Um, sort of Ayuso has been a bit more, I mean, even up till today, uh, today's the 28th, she sort of said, you know, we need to thank Vox for giving us, because they were supported by votes of Vox in, in, um, in, in, in certain areas. So how can you see this playing out between Vox and the PP in Madrid? Like, what, what would your opinion be on that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we have to remember that, that for the PP, Vox, Vox is a difficult thing to handle, actually, because, I mean, you know, we've seen headlines in the news, the far right re-emerges in Spain or whatever. It had never actually left. It had always been part of the PP. I mean, the PP, before Vox started um, to do well, had always embraced the full spectrum of the right from the centre centre-right through to the far-right. And so there were always those elements, Vox-like elements within the PP. Um, it's just that obviously that they, they were kept under wraps, as it were, when the more the more moderate elements were, were dominant. But now Vox has broken away um, and, and has its own party. The PP has to think how it handles that. And we've seen them taking disparate strategies at the time. They don't want to be too critical of Vox because some of its own, their own voters are going to Vox and they want to get them back. So if they come across as criticizing Vox too heavily, they might just irritate their own voters, those voters even more. Um, but at the same time, they don't want to be seen as being an ally to the far right. And we've seen that they haven't managed to, um, to handle this very well on various occasions. I mean, Pablo Casado changed strategy back into 2019. I mean, you were mentioning, Alan, that, that, that he's been trying to, to, to distance himself from Vox. Well, that's after the strategy to try and compete with them and move further and further to the right in 2019 sort of backfired. Mm. So then Pablo Casado decided, okay, that's not working. We're gonna try and move back to the center right and distance ourselves from Vox again. But, you know, at, at the Madrid level, we've got Ayuso is actually, I mean, she's already quite far to the right herself. And therefore, you know, it's it, we see slightly different dynamics playing at play. And I think actually this could be a source of conflict for within the PP, because there will be different, there are different views within the PP on how to handle Vox. There are those who are, you know, your centre-right elements of the PP who really want to distance themselves from Vox, but there are others who who are more willing to work with Vox. But I think ultimately we have to remember what we were discussing before, that the PP doesn't have many options now on mm. as to who it can work with. If it does win the elections with a minority and wants to govern, then realistically, especially if Theodoranos disappears, um, who else will support it other than Vox? You might get the socialists abstaining to allow the PP to form a government, a minority government to avoid, you know, them being in coalition with Vox. But that doesn't actually solve the problem that they then need to be able to govern. And as a minority government, it's very difficult to govern. So realistically, the PP doesn't have really have many options if it wins with a minority, other than to form some sort of government with Vox. Mm. And uh, so you mentioned the debate, Owen, uh, and Caroline, you mentioned not not criticising Vox too much. I mean, yes, Ayuso and 
well, in, in the, the PP and the Vox, they never really clashed during the debate. Uh, the debate. Uh, and the left did a little bit, but not too much. What was your reaction to the debate, Owen? Uh, sorry, this is the televised debate that was uh, last Wednesday. There's only been one debate. Um, and because of other things that happened, which we'll talk about very briefly in a minute, um, there hasn't been any more debates. But uh, yeah, what was your response to the debate, Owen? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as you were saying earlier, Alan, that, you know, the polls haven't really changed. And, you know, the debate didn't have... I think a huge impact in in the in those ter terms. I mean, I think yeah, the left Ayuso isn't a good debater, and she you know, inclu including she cannot see, seemingly can't control her facial expressions, and so you know didn't have a great a great debate. But you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter too too much to the to the Pepe. No? I mean, they they you know um, they have their voting base, and you know it's it's completely separate from from, from the left. Um, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, Monica Garcia, the Mass Madrid um, candidate, performed very well. Um, you know, she has been, I guess, you know, um, she's had a lot of success in, in the campaign in general. Um, and, you know, Iglesias performed well, as he always does, he, and, you know, managed to get in a few sort of um, important um, sort of, you know, managed manage to sort of, um, I guess, you know, managed to get in, in a few, few digs at, Ayuso, etc. But I mean, at the end of the day, it didn't really change much. Um, I guess the only thing we saw was uh, the socialist chain announced a sort of a sort of a shift in their their strategy. Um, they had been sort of um, they had been sort of focused on trying to get up, trying to make inroads into Ciudadanos and support in the center. It wasn't working particularly well, in part because in 2019, the people who voted for Ciudadanos were, were voting against Sanchez. They were voting against against the left, against against the socialists. So, you know, they've they've had a very poor campaign, and I think the debate marked a, a clear shift where they, um, Gabilondo, their their candidate, and you know, and um, towards the end said um, said to to Iglesias, "We have twelve days to um, you know to win these elections," and it announced a shift. He had been sort of he he had announced. Right at the beginning of the campaign, that he would prefer an alliance, Ciudadanos, Mass Madrid, and 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 the Socialists, uh, with with their national coalition partners, Unidas Podemos outside, um, and it had had also taken a, an approach of of condemning extremism on both on both sides, you no, know, on the left and on the right. Mm. It, that sort of equivalence between, you know, um, protests, for example, around Pablo Hassan, the freedom of speech protests, or whatever, and and you know, far right violence targeted at immigrants or targeted at um, protesters. Um, so that strategy hadn't worked. He's now sort of shifted towards back towards a sort of, you know, anti-fascist popular front against the right. We'll see if it's too late. I think it probably is. But like, uh, you know, that's that was probably the main, you know, um, main development from the debate. And um, Caroline, is there anything to add? No, well, I think that summarises things pretty well, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, the the debate really ex exemplified this kind of polarisation. And I think that is, it is a very worrying scenario for Spain. I mean, we are seeing the kind of language being used to describe this, this kind of campaign and the terms that are being used, you know, this, this kind of fascism versus democracy, all these kind of, I mean, and obviously there's lots of holes we can pick in that kind of um 
binary way of seeing things, but it, it is very worrying for Spain, for a country that, that, that have come so far towards trying to find a middle ground and bringing people together to see this polarization. I think one of the things I've found um, most interesting to look at in recent years actually is how Ciudadanos, the party that did mostly, tr of all of them, that most tried to be a center party to start with, failed at that. And when we look at how it failed at that, often people are saying, oh, Rivera moved the party to the right, etc., etc. It's it, it was party decisions. But actually, in large part, they moved the party further to the right because polls were showing them that it was right-wing voters that were voting for them. It was disillusioned voters with the PP who were voting for Ciudadanos. So actually, it's almost like Spanish society itself doesn't really have this middle ground of voters in the center either. Your voters are quite polarized on these issues as well. So it, it is a very worrying time for Spain. I mean, it is, it is incredible. You think, I mean, in, in two weeks, we, we reached the 10th anniversary of um, the Indignados movement, no Quinteyeme. And, you know, their, their great slogan was, you know, sort of, well, I mean, even thinking then the initial sort of Podemos, you know, beyond left and right. Um, and the idea that that, what, that had such traction 10 years ago. And now, I mean, now it does feel like, yeah, back in the sort of civil war divides um, and, and, and no middle ground. Um, obviously, 2017, the Catalan independence push was the sort of, the turning point of the decade um, and yeah, has sort of upended the, the political field. Now, I was just going to say, because you mentioned that about Catalonia and the Catalan independence movement, that the, how important that was. I think when we think of Vox as well, I mean, you know, yeah. Vox was founded back in 2013 with the kind of discourse we see today, but it didn't get traction at all until the Catalan issue. And actually, there are some academics, um, uh, Mendes and Denison, who have got a study that shows that you know, prior to that Catalan situation, people was those who might have been inclined to support Vox was still too, you know, too embarrassed. It was too still seen as a stigma to vote for a party that was so anti-immigration, anti-LGBTI movement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but the Cath see, supporting the Spanish nation was seen as acceptable. So that was almost what allowed Vox to gain a ground, to gain ground. And then once it gained ground, it started bringing forward all the other issues again that it had always supported but which had been seen as too stigmatizing in the past for for people to vote for it so it's this these strange dynamics that we've seen in the past few years that have had consequences that I think nobody nobody really foresaw I mean it's just a few years ago that academics were writing articles about how Spain has avoided the the rise of far-right parties and then look where we are now mm. yeah no I think the that radicalization or the radicalization of the right after 2017 um and I think it is, as you, as you were saying earlier, Caroline, it does create dilemmas for the Pepe because they aren't, yeah, they were used to being this sort of big tent right party, similar to the Republicans, I guess, in the US. Um, and yeah, definitely like since, since Fox's emergence, they've, they've been left with that dilemma. Do they compete for, with Fox for the votes on the right? Or, you know, do they try, um, you, know, um, you know, reach for the center grant? And they haven't been able to figure out figure that out and I think until you know um it's very hard to see them getting back into national government without a strategy to try and solve that and I think that's that's their big dilemma beyond the sort of Madrid region yeah, yeah. Uh, um I suppose the polarization is the, the 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 example of this is the 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 death threats that have been sent that is sort of um 
taken over the news cycle this week, really, which were bullets were sent last week to Pablo Iglesias, the uh, head of the civil uh, Guardia Civil and the Home Secretary, um, who is a Persoe minister. Um, and then also today they were sent to Isabel Ayuso and the uh, head of the Guardia Civil again. Um, so this, you know, this has been condemned on all fronts, but initially um, at the beginning of the week, there was another debate on Canada said uh, Spanish radio that Ayuso wasn't at, but the other candidates were. Um, and Pablo Iglesias actually walked out of that debate because um, uh, Rocío Monasterio, the, the Vox candidate, sort of questioned whether these death threats were, were real, right? Um, so yeah, that's where we're at. It's sort of like very, now it's very left and right wing, isn't it? You see massive um, groups of right wing gathering, uh, you know, Voxator in the south of Madrid this week and last week and and, and Podemos are as well. Um, and they're all sort of just staying in their own little camps trying to mobilize their own voters at the minute. Um, so yeah, there's not gonna be a much more cross party debate. The, but the polls show that Ayuso is going to probably win the election. She's well, she's going to be the majority party. Uh, I don't, don't think there's a question of that. Um, and a lot of people have put that down to um, her management of the coronavirus. You know, Madrid is, you know, her famous slogan, Libertad. Uh, you know, she's been talking about freedom is today, going to a bar, the nightclub or the the bullfighting if you want to. Um, is this going to be like a, a, a referendum on her management of COVID? Do you think that most, like, she's going to, is she going to win because she's been, I would say, lucky with her management of the coronavirus? But we haven't actually seen the, you know, it's still quite difficult to judge her management of the coronavirus, really, because, uh, um we're not, you know, we're still in this middle of this pandemic. Um, I mean, I think for every one case in Valencia, there's four in Madrid, maybe that's um, something. But yeah, how do you see the results of this connected with the coronavirus? And, um, you know, do you think there's going to be any difference to what the polls are saying, which is probably a majority for Vox and Pepe? Uh, Owen? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think this is what's what's been interesting. Again, I mean, this is we we are talking about a regional election, and nobody's talking about regional politics or regional policy nearly now. And even the pandemic is nearly sort of secondary. Um, I don't think you know the thing about the her management of the pandemic is it was a management for for her base, and I think it's not a referendum because I mean, I think I think what the what the pandemic has done for her is a letter to consolidate the Pepe's support in, 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 within the right block. So regain sort of hegemony within that right voter block. But there's so little transfer between the two blocks that it's, you know, it is really a question of, you know, reasserting her dominance within that. And part of that, again, was not even so much her management. I mean, her man you know, Madrid has the, the highest um, excess deaths. It's, uh, you know, like, you know, more, more cases of coronavirus um, per capita than any other region. Um, you know, the, um, the old folks' homes, more deaths per capita in, in Madrid as well. You know, it's, it's been very badly managed um, 
in a sanitary in, in sanitary terms and even economic terms there hasn't been you know she, again her campaign talks about the madrid miracle there hasn't been you know um a much better performance by by keeping everything open um but her sort of light touch you know um restrict her light touch, touch restrictions have played well with her base um so i think it's more about her her consolidating her support within the right block um in particular because she's used madrid as as a sort of you know as a base from which to attack the national government in a sense she's nearly become you know a rival with pablo casado in terms of you know leading the sort of right-wing opposition to the coalition um and again you have this sort of catastrophic rhetoric no that um you know it's not just that the national government you disagree with or it's it's you know handled it the, the crisis badly, but it's an illegitimate government that it's not, you know, it's, um, and again, that plays well with her base, but it's, you know, it, it has increased polarization. Um, and I think, I think at the end of the day, I mean, I think, I think the right is going to win. I think, it, but again, it's, it's because that, you know, when you look at the polls, the left only wins if there's his, a historic turnout. Um, like the, the last CIS poll, um, had had a turnout, I think, of eighty percent, which is you know, you know, you wouldn't get that, you wouldn't get it close to that in a, in a general election. Um, you know, if if you can get to seventy percent in a regional election, that would be uh, near, you know, extremely extremely high participation. So, I don't know. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have this 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 very concentrated uh, electoral majority based on the top thirty percent of uh, of of richest. Uh, voters in particular like you I mean we're talking about like the her leads or the the, the rights lead within the top 10 percent of richest voters cancels out the left's lead within the bottom 40 percent the, the bottom 40 percent of the, uh, the left has a lead less than 200,000 in the top 10 percent the right has a lead over 200,000 and unless you can you can have a historic mobilization among uh, lower income voters, and I don't really see it happening. The left can't. The left aren't going to win. Um, and it's you know it, it really doesn't matter about her. Like you know she's not an impressive politician, but it's you have this this very you know this very organized um, and coherent electoral block. I mean I think the level of class coherence, the level of class consciousness among that among those uh, richest voters, like seventy five percent. Of voters among the top ten percent voted for the right last time. Mm. Um, you know, you just can't you can't compete with that. Like the 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 level of, of abstention among low income voters just you know leaves the left in a very very weak position. And it's not it's not that Madrid is a fundamentally conservative region. I mean, it's um, it's it's just that you have this very concentrated you know electoral block which mobilizes time and again. And um, I don't see that changing uh, next week. And Caroline, anything to add? No, I mean, I, I fully agree on those points. I think we are in a situation of real polarization that all the polls suggest the right is likely to win. And the question really is, you know, how they then govern, what, what, what the scenario is and, and how bigger, how close to an absolute majority is the PP and therefore, you know, what support does it need from Vox or abstentions from others, etc.? I think that's more likely to be the question. But you know, the polls can get it wrong. So, so watch this space. <laughs> Thank you both very much.
Thank you. A pleasure. Yeah, that was good. <laughs>